The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verse 17, the 17th verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk. Now I stop at that point in the reading of the verse, because from there on the apostle begins to enter into particulars. And I'm anxious this morning to take this general exhortation with you. We come here to a fresh division in this great epistle. And it's a very important junction because this is actually the last great division in the epistle. He begins in this 17th verse what is going to continue as a section right until the end of the epistle. Therefore, it is a most important turning point, and that makes it obviously of great importance that we should understand exactly what it is he's going to do, and why he's doing it, and his reason for doing it. Therefore, there is nothing more important at this particular point than that we should be clear as to the connections and have in our mind a general view, a kind of general conspectus of the epistle as a whole. It is, from the standpoint of construction, surely one of the apostles' greatest masterpieces of all, and is generally acknowledged to be such. Well, now, let me remind you, therefore, of what exactly he is doing. He uh, has laid down his great doctrine in the first three chapters, and then having done that, he follows on to the thing we've been considering, his great appeal and exhortation to us to realize that we are members of the body of Christ and that therefore our first concern and consideration always should be to endeavor to maintain and to observe and to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he has helped us to do that by again reminding us of the whole doctrine of the nature of the church, and in particular, he has pointed out to us how the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church, when he ascended up on high, appointed offices in the church, and appointed people to fill those offices, and has gone on doing so, in order that we might be so instructed and led and exhorted as to preserve this great goal ever in our minds. We have not merely been saved that we might escape hell. We've been saved in order that God may present a people which will astonish the whole world. You remember he says in the 10th verse of the 3rd chapter, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So that more and more we must think of ourselves not in a kind of atomistic or individualistic manner, but rather 
as parts of the church, as members of the body of Christ, and that our supreme ambition should ever be to grow up into him in all things who is the head, that we all together may attain unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, that is what he has been saying, as you remember, and he has pointed out that uh, really, in view of the provision that has been made, not only the instruction uh, through pastors and teachers, but also by this life that flows from the head through the bands and the joints of connection into every part according to its measure and its capacity, we really are left without any excuse at all if we fail. He surely must have established that to the satisfaction of every one of us. And unless we feel that we are really guilty if we are failing in any respect, and that, uh, that we are without any excuse at all, well then our exposition of the first 16 verses of this chapter have been a failure, and we have preached and have taught in vain. But to use the language of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, I am persuaded better things of you, and therefore feel that we can continue. And here I say he comes to the practical outworking of all that. You notice he starts off again with his word, therefore. This I say, therefore, in the light of all that has gone before. Or if you like, to put it very practically and simply, I can put it like this. The question is now, how then are we to grow up into Christ in all things? How are we to arrive unto this perfect man? How are we to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Very well, he's going to tell us that in a very practical and detailed manner from this 17th verse of the 4th chapter to the very end of the epistle. Therefore, it seemed to me that it might be a good and a helpful thing this morning if we uh, gave a general analysis of the remainder of uh, the epistle so that we shall see the scheme and then we shall have to come to the various component parts and work them out. Now, that's, uh, I think you'll all agree, uh, a very good way of proceeding always with the scripture. It's not only a good way with the scripture, incidentally. It's a, a very good way of proceeding, whatever problem may be confronting us. I think you will find that those who've been trained in the medical profession will tell you that, uh, at least uh, it used to be the case, when medicine was perhaps more clinical and less scientific in a sense than it is now, and less dependent upon mechanical aids and devices, the old physicians, the old clinicians always taught this, that the first thing you did with your patient was to look at the patient as a whole. You don't rush at once to the particular complaint. You take a general view. Then having taken the general view, you come to the particular. It's the same with a problem, a problem in mathematics, if you like. It's the same with a problem in chemistry. If you're trying to discover by analysis uh, what, a, what particular substance, what particular chemical there is in a mass that's put before you, well, you have your general tests first. You can exclude certain big groups 
before you come to the particular analysis within the groups. And it's exactly the same with respect to the scripture. So uh, I suggest to you that it is good for us and wise for us to take this big view of the analysis of the remainder of this epistle. Now let us do so. Here, it seems to me, is the division. In uh, this uh, fourth chapter, from verse 17 to verse 24, he tells us that we must realize that we are entirely new creatures in Christ. You see, he's going on now to practical conduct and behavior. And this is how he starts it. I therefore say this, he says, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, but rather, as he says later on, that you put off the old men and put on the new men. In other words, we've got to realize that in Christ, as Christian people, we are entirely new creatures. That's what he says in verses 17 to 24. Then, having said that, in verses 25 to 29, he points out the obvious implication of that in practice with practical illustrations. Look at him doing it like this. Wherefore, in verse 25, you see, therefore, to connect your doctrine, then in the light of the doctrine, wherefore? If you haven't realized the importance of the therefores and the wherefores in the writings of the Apostle Paul, you don't know him at all. See, this is logic. This is logic. Therefore, wherefore? Wherefore, putting away lying. Having put off the old man and put on the new, you put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Be angry, but sin not. Let not the sun go down on your... And so on. In other words, doctrine first, then obvious practical implications worked out in detail. Then in verse 30, he's back again to doctrine. Grieve not, he says, the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. In other words, I put that like this as a principle. We must always remember that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. You see, he's talking about practical day-to-day -day conduct. Very well, he's put down his first reminder that we are entirely new. The second is, never, he says, forget that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. Verse 30. Then, you see, because of that, in verses 31 and 32, he says, clearly, therefore, obviously, we've got to avoid anything and everything that is going to grieve the Holy Spirit that is within us. So you let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You've got to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving. Why? Well, because if you don't, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. So again, you see, doctrine practical implications. Then we come to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Never forget, he says, that Christ died to make you a child of God. Never forget it. You are dear children of God, because Christ hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Doctrine again. Now then, because of that, verses 3 to 5, you and I must live in such a way as to be constantly manifesting that. So he gives again his practical illustrations. Fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let them not be once named among you as becometh saints. 
Christ has died to make us saints. He so loved us that he died for us to present us to God as saints. Well, get rid of these things. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which is not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. It follows, he says, of necessity from the doctrine. But he works it out for us in practical details. Then in the verses 6 to 17, he does rather an interesting thing. He has been putting down doctrine, drawing out the practical implications. He now feels that he must pause for a moment, as it were, and just drive all that home. And he realized that it was very necessary for him to do that. And that was because of certain false teachers that were going round the churches. Antinomians. The Nicolaitans that are spoken of in the book of Revelations. Men who'd completely misunderstood the gospel and who were virtually teaching, let us do good that, let us do evil that good may come. Who were turning the grace of God into a kind of excuse to do what you like and sin as you like. The apostle says, therefore, let no men deceive you with vain words. And he's so concerned about this and so alarmed for the future of the church at Ephesus that he devotes this space to it from verse 6 to verse 17. He warns them against all false and specious arguments uh, that would keep us from this practice of the Christian life and again enforces it all by another positive statement of the truth concerning us in Christ. Very well. Then he comes back again to the practicalities. That was a sort of digression, driving it home, clinching it, as it were, making sure of it. He always does that. Then he comes back in verses 18 to 21 to lay down another great principle of doctrine, and it's this. We must always remind ourselves that our lives are to be lived in the Spirit and fully under the control of the Spirit. Here are the words. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The life of the Christian is to be a life entirely under the control of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, controlled, dominated by the Spirit. There is again his doctrine. And then you see, in, uh, from verse 22 to verse 9 of the sixth chapter, he applies that. Having laid down this doctrine of the Christian as a man living his life in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, he says, obviously, this again is something that must be uh, worked out in practice. It must govern all our relationships. So he takes up the relationships between wives and husbands and husbands and wives, children and parents and parents and children, servants and masters and masters and servants. You notice how in each case, in all these subdivisions, he has the appropriate doctrine. He picks out the particular aspect of the doctrine, the general doctrine, that is particularly applicable. And so, when he's dealing with the life in the Spirit, it's these 
human personal relationships, husband, wife, children, parents, masters, and servants. So that brings us to the ninth verse of the sixth chapter. And then what is really the final section from verse 10 to verse 20 in the last chapter, the sixth chapter, he puts it like this to us. Now he says, in effect, there's the program. That's the sort of life you've got to live. Now he says, do you think that's easy? Well, whatever you may think, he says, it is not easy. You need strength infinitely greater than your own. There is a powerful adversary. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a mighty antagonist who will do everything and anything he can to keep us from this program. Why? Well, to ridicule the work of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he can make any Christian fail or the whole church fail, how happy he is. So he will attack you, he says, at every particular point. And if you don't realize that you're done for, you're already defeated. There's only one way put on the whole armor of God. He says, God has made provision. God doesn't call us to a program and leave us to ourselves, not at all. He has already provided for us perfectly in great detail. So you have this great section, the last section, verse 10 to verse 20 in chapter 6, on God's provision for the Christian in this fight of faith. The whole armor of God. And then, having said that, he just ends, as is his custom, with some personal uh, salutations and remembrances uh, and so on. Well, now, there, it seems to me, is the analysis of this last great section of this wonderful Epistle to the Ephesians. So you see, the epistle really uh, can be divided into three major sections. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he just lays down the great doctrine of salvation. Then, this short section, chapter 4, 1 to 16. The church. All that brings us into the church. And then, the outworking of all that in our daily life and conduct and experience and in all the contexts of life. You see what a wonderful scheme it is and how he works each section out in detail so that there shall be no mistake at all. Well now then, what I'm anxious to do this morning and the remainder of our time is just to look in general at this last section because uh, there are certain principles taught here quite apart from the detailed teaching which seem to me to be of very, very great importance. We shall go wrong in our detailed application unless we approach it in the right way in terms of the principles that are obviously implied by the Apostle's whole method. What are they? Well, here are some of them. The first thing that we must of necessity notice is that the great apostle never leaves anything to chance. He's a careful teacher. He's never content merely with the enunciating of principles. He always does that first, but he never stops at that. He never leaves it at that. 
he always applies his teaching. I could expand that almost endlessly. There is a school of Bible teaching which does not apply the teaching. And to me it's a contradiction of the scriptures. One has no right simply to divide up this word of God and leave it. And say as it were I'm lecturing now not preaching. It's a travesty of the use of the word of God. This word is always to be applied. And any intellectual understanding we may have of the scripture can be a snare to us if we do not always apply it. Well, the apostle makes us apply it. And we have no right to look at the, at the application simply as a general heading and say, there he is applying it. All right, let's go on to the next epistle. Not at all. He means us to face every single detail. He compels us to do so. The application of the truth in detail. He does this, of course, so that there is no excuse, as I've said, for failure. And that applies not only in general to us, but in particular. You and I, my friends, must apply what we know in detail. The Christian life is not a mere general philosophy. It is this, but it doesn't stop at this. It is a life to be lived, and it is a life that is to be lived in particular details. And if our Christian life is not being lived out in details, we are denying the very truth that we claim to believe. This can never be enforced too strongly. The whole purpose of this section is to show that very thing. Our Lord himself stated this once and forever when he said this. To me, some of the most terrifying words in the whole of Scripture. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And let us never forget this. It is according to the measure of what we have that it shall be given to us. And to him that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. Let us also remember this, that to know is a tremendous responsibility. You remember James makes a very strong point of this when he says this at the beginning of chapter 3. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. To know is a great responsibility, because if we know without applying, we shall have to answer for it. You remember our Lord again taught this so plainly and clearly, when he talks about the master coming back and investigating the conduct of his servants. He says, some are going to be beaten with many stripes, and some with few stripes. And the ones who will be beaten with many stripes are the ones to whom much had been given. Therefore, I say, if we've been grasping and reveling in this great doctrine of this great epistle, our responsibility, my beloved friends, is enormous. We are to apply the truth. This, I say, therefore, and notice how he drives it home and says, and testify in the Lord calling the Lord as my witness. That's what he means. The truth 
is to be applied. And nothing must be left to chance. We mustn't stop at generalities. It's got to come down to the very details of our lives. Very well, let me put that in a second principle by putting it like this. The life of the church and the life and life in the church is not to be a kind of detached life. What I mean is this. All we do and all we say is a part of our Christian life and living. Life outside the church and inside the church are essentially one and must always be interrelated. Each affects the other. Now, I'm not saying this, it's the apostle who's saying this. You see, because having shown us the great doctrine of the church, he immediately applies it in all the circumstances of life, outside as well as inside. There is nothing more fatal than to have a kind of break or gap or sudden change between life in the church and life outside the church. That has often been quite fatal to the history of the church. The man of the street rarely says that that is the reason why he is on the street today and not in the church. I'm not saying that whether he's right or wrong. But what he does say is that that was the position of our Victorian grandfathers. He said, look at them in their churches and chapels on Sunday. But then look at them from Monday to Saturday outside. Look at the holy look. Look at the devotion and the reverence and the apparent godliness on Sunday. Look at him in the mart and in the shop and amongst men. And he's a different man. Well, now, if that was true, and if it is true still, it's a very valid criticism. And uh, there is this danger and this tendency, isn't there? Unless one finds even this tendency sometimes in the church itself. Uh, men who, as it were, suddenly have to pull themselves up and put on a kind of uniform or mask and suddenly become serious, who normally are frivolous. There seems to be a break between their lives. They're one thing out in the street, then they cross the threshold of a particular building, and suddenly they become serious and solid. Now, that's the thing that the apostle is denouncing. We are to be as reverential outside as inside. Our lives are not to be determined by buildings. But so often it is, I think you'll agree that men put on a kind of form when they enter a building. They're coming into the church now. Now, the, the apostle's whole exhortation here is a denunciation of that and a criticism of that. The life of the Christian is one. He's a new man. He isn't the man who just puts on a different suit when he comes to church and then takes it off again or picks up a bag and puts it down. Not at all. He is something. And because he is this something, he's this something not only in the church, is this something wherever he is? In the mart, in the shop, in the business, in the profession, in the home, living with his neighbors next door, everywhere? Of course. The whole doctrine proves that. This new man in Christ Jesus, the spirit in him, the spirit isn't only in the man in the church, the spirit is in him when he's on the road, everywhere. There must be no sudden break, I say, between what we are outside the church and what we are inside the church. It's one. There's a glorious unity about this life. Let's go on to the third principle. 
And here it is again, the constant linking of doctrine and practice. Did you notice it in our analysis of this great section? Did you notice the alternating passages? Doctrine application, doctrine application, doctrine application, doctrine application. It's the Apostle Paul who does this. It isn't that I happen to have this interest. I've given you an exposition, an analysis of what the Apostle says. Now, this is to me astounding that people can ever miss this. You notice how, he, now, here he is in the practical section of his epistle. And you might have said, oh, well, now there'll be no more doctrine. Now, at any rate, uh, you've been keeping us to the doctrine for a very long time, but at last we've finished with doctrine. Thank God we've become practical at last. You can't get away from it. He brings you back to it every time. Doctrine, practice, doctrine, practice. Did you notice the alternations in the analysis? Work them out for yourselves. Even here, you see, I say, therefore, you mustn't uh, walk as other Gentiles walk. And then you and I would have stopped there, wouldn't we? We would have thought that's enough. Just so you know, you don't walk any longer as other Gentiles walk. Not so, Paul. He's bound to tell you about that walk of the Gentiles in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. And he's in the midst of his great doctrine again. And on he goes to the end of verse 24. Then he comes to the practical application in detail. Oh, doctrine and practice are so intimately related and connected that they must never be divided. He cannot, this man cannot deal even with the most practical matters except in the light of doctrine. Now then, I want to subdivide this, and I do so like this. Our conduct must always arise from and be dictated by and controlled by our doctrine. Our conduct must always arise from and be dictated and controlled by our doctrine. Always, without exception. To put that in another way, I'll put it like this. The Christian life is not a code which is imposed upon us and which we do not understand. This again, surely you'll agree, is a very practical point. The Christian life is not some sort of a code that is imposed upon us, but which we don't understand. I'm afraid that that is done, and that that is done today, and that that is done today even in evangelical circles. People come under the sound of the gospel and are converted, and then they're given a sort of code, and they try to practice it. They don't know why, they don't understand it. They say, I can't be bothered with doctrine. I, I'm not that sort of person. And the people who are leading them perhaps say the same thing. So they're just trying to conform to the code, as men do in other walks of life, but they don't understand why and they don't know why. And they're often very miserable and unhappy and they get bogged down in details and there's a great quarrel and fight going on within them. They don't know and they, they sometimes they even have a nervous breakdown. I've had to handle many such people. And it's all because they've never had doctrine. They've had a code. Ah, oh, now as a Christian, of course, you don't do this and you don't do that. But they don't know why. They don't see the reason for it. And we must never leave people like that. Never. It's very wrong. It isn't the code which is imposed upon us. As it follows out of doctrine, we must understand what we are doing and what we are not doing. Or, to put that still more plainly, let me put it like this. We should never do things merely because other people are doing them. 
And we should not refrain from doing things simply because other people refrain from doing them. We must understand why. You are no more children, says Paul. You must learn, you must grow, you must have understanding. And have understanding. Don't simply follow like sheep without understanding. In other words, I sum it up by putting it like this. Our conduct should always be to us something which is quite inevitable and unavoidable in view of what we believe. That's the way I like to think of it. If my Christian living is not quite inevitable to me, if I'm always fighting against it and struggling and trying to get out of it and wondering why it's so hard and narrow and rather envying the people who are still back in the world, there's something radically wrong with my Christian life. Christian conduct and behavior should be inevitable. No argument, no discussion. It's inevitable and unavoidable. And when we are in that position, we've really got it clearly. Well, let me try and help still further by drawing a distinction between morality and Christian living. There's a great difference between being moral and being Christian. What is the difference? Well, it's something like this. Morality is concerned about the goodness and the rightness of the thing done in and of itself and because of its social consequences. That's morality. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What does it lead to? How does it affect other people? The whole time, morality is rarely just interested in the conduct and the behavior in and of itself and in terms of its social consequences. There is a sense, you know, in which morality is a very insulting thing to a human being. Because morality in the last analysis is not really interested in me. It's only interested in my behavior. Ah, that's where Christianity is so different. Christianity is interested primarily in me. And it is interested in my conduct, not in and of itself and in terms of its social consequences. It is interested in my conduct and behavior because of its interest in Christ, in God, in the church, in the plan of redemption, in the whole scheme, in the fact that God is through the church going to astound the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Not conduct in and of itself, but conduct in terms of this vast scheme of redemption. God nullifying the effects of evil, destroying the works of the devil, and restoring and reuniting in one again all things in Christ. Now, Christian conduct and behavior always has a specifically Christian reference. It is always in terms of the grand redemption, and not simply the thing in and of itself and in its social consequences. Well, I hurry on to another one, which is this failure in the living of the Christian life, therefore, must obviously, ultimately be a failure somewhere or another to understand the doctrine and the truth. That doesn't need any demonstration, does it? In the light of all I've been saying, if any one of us is failing at any point in conduct and behavior, it is because we have not understood the doctrine. If there is anger and malice and hatred and bitterness and an unforgiving spirit in any one of us, I'll tell you what it's due to. It's that you don't realize that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you and you're grieving him. It's doctrine. 
You can't go on being like that if you realize the doctrine at that point. And it's the same with every other one. It's failure to understand doctrine that that causes failure in practice. Therefore, and I want to underline this, nothing is more fatal, nothing is worse than to ignore doctrine and to talk about being practical. The biggest failures I know in the Christian life are the people who decry doctrine and say, I'm a practical man. I'm not interested in your theology. I'm, it practices everything with me. They, of all people, are the ones who fail, most of all, as they must, because conduct is determined by doctrine and by understanding. There is nothing, I say, therefore, that is more fatal than to say that, that, that you must contrast the practical with the doctrinal. Or to put it in another form, there is nothing that is so wrong and so unscriptural as to be making constant direct appeals to the will without doctrine. The will is never to be approached directly. The will is approached through the mind and through the heart, never directly. So to appeal to people to take decisions and come forward and receive something is a denial of the whole of this last section of this epistle. It's utterly and absolutely wrong. You don't appeal to the will of people to make them holy. No, no. You get them to understand the doctrine. It's not a matter of decision. It's a matter of understanding and outworking. Therefore, I do not hesitate to say this. That all methods of teaching sanctification, which are not based directly and immediately always upon an understanding of doctrine, followed by an exhortation to us to apply that doctrine logically, is a false teaching of sanctification. The Bible teaches sanctification. The apostle is teaching it here from this 17th verse to the end of this great epistle. And that's his method. It is based directly and immediately upon an understanding of doctrine and then an exhortation to us to work out the doctrine in detail and in particular. That is his teaching. But there are forms of teaching of sanctification, as you know, that simply bypass completely a great section like this. They don't deal with it at all. You get it all for nothing. You receive it. You do nothing. The apostle is exhorting us to work out in detail, logically, what we claim to believe and to realize why we must inevitably do so if we really have understood and grasped the doctrine. And that brings me to my last word, which is this. Our concern as Christian people always should not just be a desire to be good not just a desire even to be better than we have been. It shouldn't be just a desire to get rid of certain sins and stop at that, or to have happiness or to have victory even in our lives. All that is too self-centered. And that is where again teachings of holiness go wrong. They say, are you in trouble? Come to the clinic. Are you failing at any point? Come, we can put you right. You see, they're starting with you. You are everything. No, no, says Paul. That mustn't be your concern. That follows what should be our concern. Well, our concern should be this. To function fully and perfectly as members of the body of Christ. What should worry me is not so much that I fail, 
or that I've got a problem in my life, I'm failing him. I'm failing the church. I'm failing God and his great and his grand purpose. It's all too subjective and self-centered. We must see ourselves, the apostle has given us these 16 verses to enable us to do so, as members in particular of the body of Christ. And that should be our concern. We are letting down God, as it were, and his glorious purpose. The church is being let down. Christ is being let down. He's died to make this thing perfect and entire and whole. And here are we failing. Oh, if only we looked at it like that. So often I find people are concerned about themselves and their particular sin and they spend the whole time in praying to be delivered from this sin. And I ask them, have you, have you ever considered it in terms of your relationship to him? Have you ever considered it in terms of your membership of the body? And they haven't. They've been negative in their approach and they go on in failure. We must be positive. Our desire should be to show forth his praises who hath called us out of darkness into his most marvelous light. Our desire, our objective should be to show the glory of the church in this present world. Well, let me put it in the words of our Lord himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is, you see. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and say what a wonderful person you are. How good and how holy. No, no. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works but glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are to live in such a way that people coming into contact to us won't understand us, be puzzled by us, feel that we are some sort of an enigma and shall be driven to say, well, they are as they are because they belong to that Christ of whom they speak. They're different. They're new people. It isn't this personal reference. We must see it all in terms of our high calling, of our privileged position as being joined together to the head in this wonderful body through these bands of supply and the life of the head is flowing through us so that as men and women look at us they should be compelled to think of Christ. We are followers of him. We are imitators of him. We are to be like him. We are in this world, says John, as he is and as he was. And we are ever to live to the praise of the glory of his grace. Well, there the apostle has put us on the lines and God willing we shall follow him as he leads us through the particular applications of particular applications of the one great glorious central truth. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. 
And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.